Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to Today in Manufacturing, a new podcast from Industrial Equipment News and Manufacturing.net. With me today is Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're both editors with Industrial Equipment News and Manufacturing.net with about 15 years experience covering the industry each. How are you guys doing today? Good, David. How about yourself? Uh, doing really well. Anna? Hey, David. Doing great. Awesome. Well, uh, a little bit of housekeeping before we get rolling. I just want to make a note to subscribe, like, and engage with the video if you like it. Um, Also, email the podcast. If you have any ideas for possible news or uh, topics you'd like us to cover in the future, just pick any one of our names at IEN.com, and uh, we'll get back to you on the next episode. So let's jump right into things. Uh, With our top news segment, the first story this week, uh, the electric air taxis to zip people to airports. Basically, on Wednesday, United Airlines said it plans to buy 200 small electric air taxis to help customers in urban areas get to the airport. The airline will partner with electric aircraft startup Archer to develop an EV toll aircraft. Archer said the initial order will be worth $1 billion with an option for $500 million more. The first aircraft, pending certification from the FAA, will be delivered in 2024. Jeff, what were your thoughts on this story? Well, I mean, I think the technology and the strategy overall is fantastic. I mean, fewer vehicles on the road, especially in those congested areas. I mean, there can be a ton of different benefits there um, from an emissions perspective, from a transportation fluidity perspective and keeping people happy. But the first place that my mind goes whenever we put more things in the air is safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, FF, the FAA is already having issues with individual drones and some of the safety concerns that that can cause for airline traffic. And while we've done a done a good job at getting better when it comes to protecting passengers on ground-based transportation, we still have enough struggles there. Mm-hmm. So when you put somebody in the air, thousands of feet in the, on, in the air, in a metal compartment with fuel, there's some bad things that can happen there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be careful. So I think you're, you're going into an area that's going to need a lot more legislation, a lot more regulation. Um, the FAA is already dealing with a lot of stuff, like I said, the drones and all that. So there's there's some definitely some safety concerns that I think would need to be worked out in addition to the technological stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of compounding that, we've seen some stuff from the NHTSA this year with the pandemic. There was like a, I think it was like a 16% drop in miles traveled. Mm-hmm. Well, you would think that would translate over to safer roadways, but we still saw only like a 2% drop in, in fatalities. Mm-hmm. So again, the safety thing is sort of the, the main challenge I think that they're actually going to encounter there. They can talk about the logistics and the investment, but again, got to make sure we get there in one piece. Anna, how about yourself? You ever going to fly in a flying car? <sighs> well, first of all, let's just, can we agree that there's no such thing as a flying car <laughs> that is an airplane? Uh, Fair. <laughs> which Fair. I believe we already have a term for it in this airplane. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you know me, there's no chance that I'm going to get on one of these things. Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree with Jeff. I, I have concerns about the safety and it seems like historically speaking, the smaller the planes, the greater the risk. And Mm -hmm. that's been, I think, mostly pinned on pilot training. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at it this way. The U S has not had a fatal passenger airline crash since 2009, but like, for example, I think in 2018, 2019, there was a, an average of one civil aviation death per day. So the overwhelming majority of those are obviously then small private planes. And the accidents are blamed usually on pilot error. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would worry about how this would play out once you add any sort of volume to this concept, you know? Mm-hmm. I well, mean, well, and they're, they're, they're using the word taxi. Mm-hmm. So the volume is implied, right? I mean... 
Uber's business model would be pretty crappy if they only had like five cars. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think like besides the air traffic control issue, which is a huge one, I'd, I'd just be concerned about where they're getting all these pilots and how extensive the training is. And that's not just because I'm personally terrified of prop planes. <laughs> that's nothing to do with it. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you bring up a good point with the uh, air taxis because uh, while we've seen and covered a lot of cool flying cars or transition automobiles, actually, as they're called, to bridge the gap from car to plane, um, they change from road-capable cars to aircraft and even flying motorcycles. I think that you know they're going to be niche for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if not forever. I mean, I think of the guys who have that that you were talking about in civil a- aviation, the guys that have that Cessna in the barn, or even like uh, people that have sports cars. Um, but I think the real commercial opportunity is urban air mobility or the air taxis. Um, instead of another toy, it actually cures some of the infrastructure problems. And, you know, to your point, Jeff, with regulation, you know, NASA's advanced air mobility national campaign is specifically for that, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, they have a recent partnership with WISC trying to figure out uh, the right type of craft to make it happen, but also like how's it going to work logistically in terms of routes management. Um, you know, it's a big undertaking. Uh, and to your point about Uber, you know, it actually, the air taxi kind of really made sense with the Uber model. Um, unfortunately, because that company is bleeding money, it had to sell that <laughs> part of the business. Yeah. And uh, you did see, uh, I'm not sure if either of you guys watched the, uh, did you see the footage from the Volkswagen video, the new uh, pop-up next flying car taxi concept from Atel mm-hmm. Design? Yeah. Just really cool um, made in collaboration with Airbus and Audi, where it's it's a pod. It's kind of like, I think of it as like, you have this autonomous smart car that kind of meets you, um, meets the quadcopter, picks the pod up, and then takes you from there. And I just think that that's a really interesting concept. Not close, not close <laughs> by any means, yeah. but uh, still something that I see as feasible and something for the greater good. Potentially, I think the the best applications for these, you know, we're just talking about taxi here. We're talking about flying cars, or to Anna's point, it's not really a flying car; it's mm-hmm. it's a plane or a chopper. Um, you know, for military applications, I see a ton of potential with this mm-hmm. type of vehicle, um, just for the flexibility it offers and getting troops from point A to point B more safely and navigating different types of terrain. But I think when I when I think about this from a consumer level, I mean, how cool is it if you're in a traffic jam to just push a button and convert? And get out of there. Mm-hmm. And how many people are going to have the same thought process? Yeah. I mean, the, so the scale of the scalability and the technology is one thing. Safety and just just the feasibility of this actually happening and trusting human beings to manage this technology safely. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless we we can get into Jetson like technology with floating, you know, um, uh, traffic signs and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, uh, I don't know how we're going to make this work, but it is interesting <laughs> in in certain arenas. Um, that we're trying out first to, to see how it could go. Yeah. The first time, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Anna. The first time one of these crashes on a highway and takes out like an innocent bystander vehicle, or everyone's going to freak out. I don't know. I no, don't just, see it soon, but yeah. you know, maybe I'm Think wrong. of the response to the first autopilot crash with Tesla. It's going to be the same thing. And uh, really, infrastructure-wise, it's not going to be you're stuck in traffic and you can just lift off. I think that there will be less traffic because there will be almost like autonomous routes that these can fly on, not that they will be piloted necessarily. 
but still. Yeah, I mean, and even when you go that way again, who who regulates that? That's a whole. That's more infrastructure. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting. Um, futuristic topic and what was the timestamp there before we, we made a tesla spacex <laughs> musk reference yeah. yeah well it was it was uh it was sooner than i actually described the concept of the show where i say <laughs> we cover the five most popular stories on our websites uh typically do that after the intro but i got a, i got a little jittery so i just fired right in Perfect. um topic number four because we're getting the uh we're already going long on the first one um Fallout at Hyundai and Kia after Apple car talks break down. In early January, Hyundai confirmed a report that the company was in talks with Apple over potential plans to develop self-driving cars and or electric vehicle batteries at U.S. Hyundai and Kia factories. Kia shares jumped more than 60% and held because the deal was reportedly imminent. This week, Hyundai walked it back and said that they were not in talks with Apple on autonomous vehicle development. As a result, Shares tumbled, and the two companies lost a combined market value of $8.5 billion. Anna, your <laughs> thoughts on the fallout? It is a lot of cash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of cash. And, and what's interesting to me is there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what actually caused the talks to break down. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the theories are, are pretty interesting. One being that Hyundai just doesn't want the moniker of supplier. Um, because that's the way maybe this was being positioned by Apple that Hyundai was going to supply components or build. Um, Hyundai wants a partnership and uh, Hyundai has been known for its vertically integrated supply chain and they actually produce a lot of their own components and even materials in house. So that strategy is what Reuters suggested maybe has led to their general reluctance to work with outsiders. Um, But other theories have said that the talks actually broke down because, you know, Apple is so secretive and that the deal was so secretive that Hyundai actually leaking this to the media brought things to sort of a grinding halt. Um, mm. As we know, they announced in January that they were in talks with Apple, but then they notably omitted Apple's name from any of the related press that followed. So, you know, it, it was pretty clear there that they had maybe spoken out of turn. Mm-hmm. Um, that all said, there's lots of auto writers right now that are stressing that just because they made this proclamation now that these talks are not necessarily forever dead. In fact, Bloomberg used the word paused when they referred to the talks with Apple. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but this thing might not be over. One Apple analyst who had been pretty targeted in his evaluations in the past, his name's uh, Ming-Chi Kuo, still believes that the company does indeed plan to use a Hyundai platform for its first electric. and to use Kia for its U.S. manufacturing, though. He says that the car won't hit the market before 2025. So there's still like tons of speculation out there. I don't think that this was put to rest at all by Hyundai's statement, um, but it's been interesting to see the fallout nonetheless. Well, I guess for the sake of whoever made the decision to leak the information, I hope that it is just paused <laughs> because <laughs> maybe uh, the trajectory of his career is paused as Not, well at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> not great. Uh, Jeff, your thoughts on the story? Well, I think I think it's interesting. First of all, who Apple was talking to, you know, mm-hmm. talking to, to Hyundai and Kia, because when you look at those two, you know, Hyundai's sales for the year were down about 10% in 2020. Understandably, there's a lot of automakers that saw those types of dips, but this is a little bit higher than some of the other automakers. We've seen these results sort of come through in the past week with GM, Toyota, and others. So they were down. Kia's sales were actually up for the year. 
So there is some positives there. But when you look at both of these companies, their product offerings and their, their lineup, it's not as diverse as others. You know, Hyundai really focusing on the CUVs and some mid-sized SUVs. They do have the very popular Sonata and Elantra models. Those, those, uh, those sedans are still doing very well. Kia also not as much diversity in their offerings. You know, a lot of mid-sized cars, mm-hmm. more than others. You know, we've seen other automakers cut those back. So while you have to really respect sort of the power of Apple here in terms of driving uh, or generating these types of positive and negative results for these stocks if for just a potential partnership. I wonder if there's not some other factors at play as well. If people were maybe on the, on the fence a little bit, this tipped them off over a little bit because there are some things going on with both of those uh, automakers just in terms of their, their lineup and their sales trajectories. Maybe people had a little, or had, maybe had people a little bit nervous to begin with. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the impact of the speculation uh, because there's speculation over a new possible partnership with Apple, uh, and it's emerged with Renault, and it seems to be gaining ground. Uh, the French automaker has ties to Asian car companies such as Nissan and Mitsubishi, which seems to be a need for Apple. And, uh, of course, Renault's stock spiked, but, I mean, I kind of feel like, watch out, Renault. Like, uh, <laughs> it just, I mean, like you said, it's to the power of that brand and just even like the loose association with that company is enough to, you know, really prop up your company. Well, and purely speculating here, but you wonder too, if there's not something going on with uh, the chip shortage, you mm-hmm. know, if there wasn't something in the supply chain with either the automakers or with Apple and they saw a benefit one way or the other. So, you know, there's that factor as well. And there's so much unknown with this. Like Anna said, Apple is such a weirdly secretive company. Um, they're also the ones who are obviously famous for having those annual events where they roll out a bunch of stuff. So mm-hmm. they're not uh, press averse either. So. Right. This has all been carefully calculated. This is part of the plan. We're being mm-hmm. manipulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. The uh, third most popular the story on the uh, third most popular story on the sites this week was a story of hackers breaching a treatment plant and trying to poison the water. Um, in Florida, a hacker infil- infiltrated a remote access system at a water treatment plant, tried to taint the water supply to 15,000 residents with an increased amount of sodium hydroxide, or lye, by a factor of 100, going from 100 parts per million to 11,000 parts per million. A supervisor caught it just because he was looking at his screen as the hacker was moving the mouse. Sodium hydroxide, of course, is lye, which is used to treat water acidity. But, you know, it's also used to melt bodies. Um, <laughs> From the inside out. Yeah. Um, Anna, thoughts on melting bodies and this potentially harrowing uh, incident? Yeah, it really was harrowing. When this story first broke, I kind of I kind of like lost my breath for a second. It was so terrifying to mm-hmm. think about um, what could have happened here. Um, but I do think that it is an important story um, as we talk about uh, examples of cybersecurity breach and how catastrophic and devastating those can be. Um, follow-up reports on this event elaborated that this hacker had breached an old Windows system and that all the users had been using the same password mm-hmm. to remotely access the remote management. So it wasn't exactly you know, a top-tier effort here. In fact, the software for remote monitoring was being described as, quote, a disused version. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really think this couldn't be a more clear example of why industrial facilities need to update their approach to cybersecurity. But, of course, there are challenges here. Um, one being how utilities like these are being characterized as cash-strapped, 
the implication being that there are budgetary constraints standing between them and these types of investments. But this, I think, is clear enough. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. a city's Mm -hmm. water supply was nearly poisoned. And if not for an employee happening to see the mouse clicks of this hacker, it's just like it's like a movie. You know, it really emphasizes that cybersecurity isn't just a nice to have anymore. It's not enough to say that our long term plan is working to improve this. I mean, this kind of investment is critical plan infrastructure and it needs to happen now. You know, I mean, I think one of the positive points to come out of the pandemic is that businesses are are kind of being forced into some of these upgrades, whether it's new software implementations to support remote work or e-commerce or whatever. And hopefully some of these more modern approaches by default will boost security for some businesses. And for the rest, you know, this is a hard and scary lesson and probably has caused some lost sleep for some executives considering like, could this happen to my business and what would be the ramifications? Jeff, uh, as the lead on manufacturing business technology, you run a lot of stuff on cybersecurity. Seems like a lot of this stuff is the basics, you know, when it even comes down to as simple as password maintenance. Um, your thoughts on uh, sort of the failings here and then what this means for a greater connected world going forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, as Anna alluded to, I mean, uh, there's been greater attention being paid to a lot of automation and software investments due to the pandemic. Most of that stemming from remote working, but because there's more people working remotely and remote monitoring technologies being so much more important, there has been a renewed focus or an upgraded focus on security as well. Mm-hmm. Now, that security was probably good enough five years ago, mm-hmm. it, but they've been playing, the industrial sector in particular, has been playing catch up on cybersecurity for quite some time. Um, there's some very scary stats out there, varying levels uh, between 50 and 80% of industrial enterprises, including utilities like this, simply underprepared, undertooled, uh, underdefensed against modern hacking technologies. Mm-hmm. And what's going on right now with manufacturing and other industrial operations not slowing down as much during the pandemic, it basically left these hackers um, and other malicious actors with a a pretty focused target base. They were Mm -hmm. going after manufacturing intellectual property. They were going after some of these utilities and government agencies because they were the ones that that were still in operation. Mm -hmm. So there's been more phishing, more malware, more ransomware attacks. And as a result, there is a renewed focus on investment. You know, I've seen something, uh, London-based markets to markets, they said global cybersecurity is going to become a $250 billion industry. Mm -hmm. That's just protecting. That's not other software. That's just protecting your assets. Mm -hmm. So as we see more of these things, which it is really scary, um, the need is there. The desire is there. We need to make sure the actual funds are there. And for this situation, with it being a a government agency, obviously that's always an ongoing challenge in terms of getting that support. Mm -hmm. I think what's, what's kind of worth calling out here too, though, is... Last week, we talked about an accident at a food plant, and we were wondering a little bit on some of the um, monitoring and sensing technologies that could have been in place to help prevent that leak. Mm -hmm. Here, there were those things in place. So even if this wouldn't have been caught sort of at the IT level, there were other sensing technologies that would have caught this influx of the chemical coming into the water supply, which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. But again, still a lot that needs to be done here from an investment perspective. So, I mean, you talk about the 250 billion potential, Um, you know, why has it taken so long in your opinion, Jeff, to sort of ramp up to this level? You know, to me, I feel like it was just a numbers game. Like so many, so many more businesses, things, items were being connected and people had this mentality of, well, you know, what are the chances that come after me? 
Well, there's a couple different factors. I think one of the big ones is we don't understand it. <clears throat> day to day, I mean, everybody knows what a hacker is, right? But you don't really understand their tactics and their approaches. And a lot of this comes from it's simple stuff. An email that goes to an employee, they open it and they're using a, a company server. Well, all of a sudden the server is infected and it's a bigger deal. Well, if you don't understand and know about that stuff, then you can pretend like you don't have to. So it's not as much of an investment priority. And that sounds like sort of eluding that situation, but that's what's happened at a lot of industrial enterprises. A lot of manufacturers simply didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. They didn't go out and learn enough until they got hit. Mm-hmm. Once they got hit, then the reaction amplifies, steps up, and they do more about it. The other thing is manufacturers are focused on making stuff. Yeah. Okay? That's where the investment is going to go. Now we're learning we, in making stuff, protecting stuff is just as important as making stuff. And that's one of the things that's come out of the pandemic as well from an investment perspective. So I think both of those, um, those, those approaches are sort of being turned on their ear in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and with instances like this, um, this one gained a lot of notoriety Hopefully that'll help step up the investment efforts. Yeah, just it blows my mind that, uh, you know, because a guy caught a mouse moving, it went from being characterized as a nefarious actor to a, you know, could have been a mass murderer. Yeah. Um, the second most popular story this week was a story about 28 garment workers that were killed in a flooded factory. Uh, the story is an, an illegal garment factory in Morocco flooded and at least 28 workers are dead. The flooding was the result of heavy rains on Monday. Emergency personnel were able to rescue 10 people from the factory, which was, the ba- which was in the basement of a residential villa. These illegal operations are called, quote, shadow factories, and legitimate operations subcontract these basement factories to speed up production and compete with cheaper products coming from China and Turkey. Uh, Anna, your thoughts on this story? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's really, sadly, there's so many of these shadow factories. Um, this brought to mind for me the illegal factory in India that went up in flames in 2019 and 43 people died because there was only one exit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, businesses in the U.S. I think complain about regulations, and I get it. They create their own challenges, of course, and everybody hates dealing with the fire marshal. But stories like these just remind us how quick and catastrophic the impacts can be at some of these illegal operations overseas, where authorities either forego the regulations entirely or just, you know, look the other way. Mm-hmm. And in the case of this Morocco factory, and this is sadly pretty common, there's no record of how many people are even there at any time because it's all under the table. So, um, and the same thing happens with these illegal mines all across Asia. We saw it recently with miners getting trapped for weeks and, you know, many of them died. Uh, these operations are just trying to make as much money as they can while they can. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think it's also a good reminder of the supply chain implications and how important it is not to look the other way as a consumer when a company gets busted for working with some of these outfits that are breaking the rules at the expense of the human rights of others. Mm -hmm. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, sadly here, there's also market factors at play. Mm -hmm. Um, When we look at textiles, when we look at garment industry specifically, again, this is a low margin industry. Um, the, the, what they're making per garment per piece, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's three and four cents an item, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe or three or 4%, I should say per item. So when that happens, there's sort of a race to the bottom in terms of finding the lowest cost outlet. And then as Anna said, you know, supply chain visibility has always been an issue in textiles, whether mm-hmm. it's, it's clothes, whether it is other household goods or furniture, 
supply, it's always been difficult to understand. Yeah, there's a tag on there that says the country, but going beyond that has always been difficult to understand where things actually originate. And as a result, when you're looking at cost pressures, these types of ghost factories happen. Uh, they, they, they pop up. And I think what's become more and more important, obviously, is a lot of the bigger names in the textile industry and the fashion industry are looking more into their supply chain. And we're actually also seeing in the U.S. some of the reshoring effects um, or um, the increase in reshoring has come from the textile sector. Mm. There is still a lot of those plants in the southeastern part of the country that have sat dormant for a while, and they're getting reinvigorated. It's not happening in mass, but as people look to understand, and this has been another effect of the pandemic, getting closer to their supply chain, understanding their supply chain better, that could have a positive impact on bringing some of those jobs back to the U.S. Mm. I'd like to feel like I'm part of the solution by only turning over my wardrobe every 10 years. You know, just buy nice stuff. <laughs> only <laughs> That does make a difference, though, David. I mean, like, you know, the fast fashion industry, which, mm-hmm. you know, these retailers that will sell you a T-shirt for $7 and then it falls apart in the wash after three wears, like, these are the biggest contributors to this problem. These are the the problem companies, I think, that are, are creating this market for these cheaply made goods. And I do think that we're becoming more aware of it. Um, one thing that I was interested by was the woman who was interviewed uh, that said that she was just working as usual and there was no real plan in place when water started rushing in. You know, I feel like there has to be some sort of minimum standard on a global level because no product is worth a person anywhere drowning in a basement. Um, I think many times the people working in these factories are also kids, a lot of child labor. And it is, you know, just a drop in the bucket. But the U.S. Department of Labor did just commit $8 million to increase downstream tracing of goods made by child and forced labor. So, you know, not a lot, but something. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Finally, the top story of the week. Uh, A familiar brand everybody has loved, depending on your age. Actually, no, even if you're young, you still loved it. Um, Aunt Jemima was rebranded as the Pearl Milling Company. On Tuesday, Quaker Oats officially renamed the Aunt Jemima brand pancake mix and syrup. The product line will now be called Pearl Milling Company. Real splash with that one. Aunt Jemima products will continue to be sold until June when the packaging will change over. Quaker sought input from customers, employees, and external cultural experts to develop the new brand name. Aunt Jemima now joins several other brands that have been retired as a result of racial insensitivity. For example, Uncle Ben's Rice is now Ben's Original, and Eskimo Pies are now Edie's Pies. Jeff, hungry? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, hey, who doesn't love pancakes? And you need syrup on pancakes. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember when you had that pancake eating contest, David? Do we still have some footage of that we could share? Mm. Yes, that yes, we do. Yeah, let's get that in here. Uh, yeah, four, 30 pancakes in 43 minutes. I thought That's, I could do it in a half hour, but it was, it was not 30. No, don't. it was no, it was uh, wasn't it 30? No, it was 30 pancakes. Yeah, 20. Well, 20 either way. I'll do 30. I'll do 30 tomorrow. No, uh, <laughs> but it was that three quarter bottle of pancake syrup mix or pancake pancake syrup that I didn't expect. That's what got me. <laughs> That's what really got me. Cleared out that room real quick. <laughs> um, you know, this is interesting. On one hand, obviously, good move by mm-hmm. by, by Quaker in, in terms of changing the name. But this is such a tough rebranding message, potentially, because when you look at it, there are some elements of the package that still do bring forward enough for the consumer to recognize it, mm-hmm. but it's still totally different. It's a different name. And you're also looking at what is kind of a commodity item in terms of when you go to the grocery store and you look on the shelf, there's a ton of different options for syrup. Mm-hmm. So if people are not aware, 
this is a tough one because not only is it a different label and all that for those who are not aware, but then if you try to create awareness, what's the message? Hey, we used to be kind of racist and now we're not. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's basically what that's they're, the that's what they're yeah. saying. Okay. I mean, <laughs> Work so tagline. What, what is, what's the promotional message there? They can't say it's better. They can't say it's different. It's just a different name. Right. So it's going to be interesting, you know, according to some stats, I mean, Aunt Jemima is like the leader um, in terms of overall sales and usage for this category in terms of pancake syrup. So we'll see what happens. It may, I mean, this might be something that their competitors are able to leverage a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to that point, we did have some fired up responses on the website. You know, we had some people getting angry. We had one person that just flat out said, looks like I'll be switching pancake mix. Well, you will, because even if it's the same, it's Pearl. Ha <laughs> That's how I get you. But uh, he also wrote, don't back up and don't back down. I don't get that one. I don't get no. that one either. No. Come on, guys. Let's uh, improve the level of comments on the site. Uh, some people don't care. You know, uh, one person said, when I cra- have a craving for an Eskimo pie, I'm just going to buy whatever they offer. It doesn't matter what the name is. I want an Eskimo pie. Uh, and others had some fun with it that uh, said that I know I'm more likely to buy food endorsed by someone's big, fat, jolly aunt than a milling company. The previous revisions to Jemima weren't good either. Never trust a skinny chef. So, uh, Anna, thoughts on... <laughs> uh, that? Yeah, that misses the point, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, agreed, agreed. Um, your thoughts on the, uh, the rebranding? Yeah. Um, Pearl Milling is the name of the mill, the company that actually invented um, the pancake mix. Right. And this was forever ago, like the late 1800s. This was the first ready-mix pancake formula ever created. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I don't know. It just sounds really like industrial revolution style. Like do flour mills and paper mills even want to be called mills anymore? Right. It's just, it's an old school term. I know it, it, it it's a real term, but it's, um, I don't know. I didn't well, expect them to change it to like flip or something like generically yeah. modern, like every startup that has a one word name, but, um, it just got, I don't know. To me, Pearl milling just has like a really antique feel. Like sounds maybe. like a craft beer. Yeah. Or I don't know. Like to me, it's like, like, like this old dusty old plant and maybe like Jack the Ripper works there. (laughs) Well, no, or that, or like the Pearl Milling Company is the place where there's a bunch of trendy startups. Like you said, uh, you know, a new pizza joint, you know, where they basically stripped everything but the hall and it's still called the Pearl Milling Company. (laughs) Right. It's like luxury apartments on the top floor and then the bottom is retail space. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Anna, my thought was that ants around the nation are still making banging pancakes. Couldn't we have just updated updated the icon? Or do you think that it had reached the level that they just needed to put it to bed and try something new? I, I think it had to be done. Yeah. I think, I, you know, it just, I think it, it had to be done. Okay. Yeah, that Aunt Jemima in some circles definitely has a, a negative, very negative association to it. So, okay. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to take a moment to uh, try and bring down the pancake mix industrial complex. Um, just because aggressive, yes, yes. And because, I mean, of all things that I've done in this, uh, pandemic and you could tell if the shot was lower, um, I've been doing more baking and, uh, I just realized that every box in that baking aisle is maybe full of 15 cents worth of ingredients, 50 cents with the egg of stuff you already have in your house. And, uh, I just feel like maybe some people should take a little bit more time to realize, like, I mean, it's just flour and like two other things. You don't need that box. What about the syrup? 
Well, the syrup, absolutely. Oh. I'm not taking down the okay. syrup industrial right. complex, just right. the pancake. <laughs> oh, yeah. My apologies. But I mean, if you have more time on your hands, like start tapping those trees because homemade maple syrup is wild. Oh, no, they're yeah. careful. Yeah, I mean, careful. Beyond my ability. The syrup but, mafia is real, dude. Really? Careful. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, my brother's making it. Does that mean he's part of it? He couldn't tell you if he was. Oh, my goodness. Well, either way, it's a hot button topic, and our readers continue to respond to it. Any sort of rebranding, I feel like that also is just a testament to the power of that brand. Like you talked about, anytime a major brand has to um, change course, it's going to fire people up. Um, okay, on to the next segment, which uh, instead of uh, going from top news to big news, which was, you know, lazy, admittedly, um, we're calling it In Case You Missed It. Uh, basically, these are the three stories that maybe weren't as popular on the site, but also feel like uh, have a big impact on the manufacturing industry at large. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to start with you. Um, what's your story this week? Well, I resisted the urge to go the Elon Musk route. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we talked a lot. But even though it was interesting that he's talking now to, to folks in Miami about his boring company oh, and some yeah. stuff going on there. But, but I actually thought it was kind of interesting. One that flew under the radar a little bit was a story that we did talking about the Mexican government basically favoring their state-owned utilities in terms of buying electricity and power from them because there's a surplus due to reduced use during the pandemic and avoiding, intentionally avoiding, and potentially breaking some trade packs with foreign um, util- foreign energy production facilities that were put in place. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because basically you've got a company that has grown by almost 20% in terms of manufacturing output over the last five years, and a lot of that is from foreign investment coming mm-hmm. to Mexico for the obvious benefits of being close to the U.S. from a logistics perspective, and um, potentially alienating those folks a little bit by saying, no, we appreciate the fact that you invested in building these facilities and supplying this uh, alternative form of energy. It's cleaner, it's better, but we're going to use our own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, just sort of an isolated incident, but when you look again, one of the things that's come out of this pandemic is manufacturers looking at supply chain, trying to get closer to it, and Mexico has a huge opportunity there to grow even more than they have been in terms of welcoming more of those folks over and offering them less reg- regulatory concerns than you would in the U.S., lower pay wages than the U.S., but still easy access to the biggest market in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting. You know, they could be uh, slapping the hand that's feeding a lot of their industrial growth there. So I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. Uh, my story this week was Subaru blaming an entire recall on a single factory worker. We talk <laughs> a lot. We've had stories both last week um, with the maintenance guy who caught the explosion that it could have been worse. Uh, and also the worker, what was the story? Oh, the worker catching the mouse, you know, saw the mouse move, saved the lives of 15,000 people potentially. Uh, well, this was the other way. Subaru, uh, recently recalled, well, not the other way that so many people perished, but either way, Subaru recently recalled the 2021 Imprezas and Outbacks, and they blamed the problem on a single worker. Uh, the recall stems from an improperly tightened nut after a single production line worker used, quote, an improper torque wrench technique. So, like, not righty-tighty? I don't... And uh, <laughs> as a result, the gear selector on about 400 vehicles might not work. I mean, at least they didn't call the worker out by name. But, uh, I mean, it's just kind of proof that no matter how tight you run your ship, I mean, someone's going to go rogue, if you're big enough anyways. Well, and we even had somebody on the site say, hey, what was his name, basically? Like, they were disappointed Subaru didn't actually, you know post his photo and home address or something. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just think, thankfully they didn't do that, but it still just seemed like, Oh yeah, it was this one dude in the back 
don't worry, we got it. Everything else is fine. <laughs> that's uh, that's what left a bad taste in my mouth. I yeah. mean, it's like quality is obviously a sore spot for Subaru. They've been dinged a lot in the last few years, especially by like JD Power quality rankings and you know, they've had a lot of recalls and then, <clears throat> so I feel like this is just like, you know, like last year they had a pretty decent year. They only had like two recalls, I think. And, and so this happens and they're like, but it was not us, Subaru corporate. We don't want you to think that it mm-hmm. was this guy and, um, he's wearing a yellow t-shirt and this guy sucks. And Good. That, yeah. I mean, Jeff, like you mentioned last week, uh, you do come from the automotive tool industry. What is improper torque wrench technique? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm guessing he either <laughs> under or yeah. over tightened here. I, I, I'm guessing probably under tightened. I yeah. don't know. It wasn't, no. I'll show those guys um, for not giving me my quarter <laughs> raise this year. Yeah, maybe he's going to hurry. I, I don't know. Yeah. They um, don't call me over tight Ted for nothing. <laughs> oh, the n- potential for nicknames for that man. Just endless. Like, uh, hey, have you heard of my uncle? Yeah, he's the he's the torque wrench guy. <laughs> he's a nut job. <laughs> oh man, thank you. Uh, Anna, uh, you're in case you missed it this week. Yeah, um, you know it's it was easy to gloss over this one. I think because we've been a little bit fatigued by layoff stories. Unfortunately, I mean that's just sad byproduct of this pandemic, but. I thought it was notable that beer brand Heineken had announced that they'll be cutting 8,000 jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, to me, it's like even industries that we think should be doing good are struggling due to the pandemic. Like, I, I think it's been well documented that people are drinking more. Like, that's what everyone's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately for beer companies, like the increase in supermarket and liquor store sales for at-home consumption, like, does not appear to be enough to balance out the absolute tanking of their bar and restaurant business. So, you know, the result of this for Heineken was a revenue dip of 17% um, over 2019, you know, the salad days of 2019 when we didn't have a care in the world. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. It wasn't actually like that, but, um, but Heineken CEO, Dolph Vandenbrink, Dolph Vandenbrink, sorry, if that's wrong, Dolph. um, Nailed it. (laughs) I'm, I'm, Almost certain it's Dolph. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he well, Anyway, he described 2020 as a year of unprecedented disruption and transition. And yes, I think we can all agree on, on that. So I guess pour one out for Heineken's workforce this weekend, guys. Well said. Yeah, uh, Jeff, uh, at-home consumption combined to or compared to at-the-bar consumption, are you up or down this year? Uh, probably down because I think when I'm at home, I'm just not doing like I'm sitting down to have a beer, not yeah. really doing anything as opposed to, you know, kicking I'm, your butt at shuffle puck or darts. I'm, or I'm definitely, like I'm still losing at shuffle puck. It's just with smaller people now. And my, I'm definitely net positive. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, net positive or, <laughs> I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think that, I mean, I'm not helping Heineken, but I mean, the gin industry better be doing all right as, as a result. Um, Anna, how about yourself? Uh, consumption up or down? <laughs> it's it's been so low for like the last couple of years. I just that's um, that's my cross to bear. But <laughs> I don't know one one glass of wine a week. Like that's probably it. Honestly, I would do a um, unprompted promotion for some of our wonderful craft breweries here in Wisconsin because I've been uh, sampling those. Oh, good, good. I uh, um, my wife wanted me to 
try and pick up some of the new Minocqua Brewing Company brand. And I had not been in the craft brewing section at a liquor store in some time. And that game has just exploded. I was overwhelmed. I'm like, there's too much wit and colorful packaging for me to even understand it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going back to the gin. Yeah. (laughs) Gin will always be there for me. And it's like weird, sad, clear formula. I will never... (laughs) Jin, you will never change, and that's why I love you. Right? You just, I mean, just uh, describe every night for me in the pandemic, a weird, (laughs) sad formula. (laughs) No, it's, uh, I mean, uh, to another point, though, like, I do really feel bad, like, uh, um, as a regular part of uh, socializing and nightlife, you know, going out to the bar, I do feel for that industry, and I know that they're hurting right now, and I feel like no matter how many carry out orders we get from them or sweatshirts we try to buy from them. It's just, I mean, uh, I, I hope they can hang on. I hope they can hang on. Um, any final thoughts this week, uh, Jeff? Well, following Subaru's lead, if there's anything wrong with this podcast from a technical or factual perspective, that is, we do have a guy we can blame. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy's all. So <laughs> um, <laughs> just want to throw that out there. Right, right, right. I mean, and if not Andy, we have at least you know, five to 10 other people we can throw under the bus before ourselves. Uh, Anna? Oh, I don't know. How do you top that? <laughs> you could just get at Andy again. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for everyone listening, I just want you to know that we are in Madison, Wisconsin, and it has been zero degrees for like seven days straight. So please send help. We are not okay. I mean, it's, it's cold everywhere right now, right? Is yeah. it like this cold everywhere? I think so. Like even at... I think like Florida, the one place where our boss is, everywhere else is freezing. It's uh but no, it's uh I know it's been too long because today I walked outside and I didn't it didn't even like hit me. I was just like, Oh yeah, again. This is my uh, life now. Yeah. Well, uh thank you both very much uh for taking the time today. I really do always enjoy the conversations, even if I just like butchered the intro. I didn't think you um mispronounced any states or cities this uh this time. oh yeah my that's goodness. true good work it, man it's a good thing i would like to thank friends family and everyone in our audience for uh making me feel not good at all as a result of that mess up <laughs> just like <laughs> where were you born and i'm like i was uh legitimately trying to chase down old social studies teachers to try and figure out like who was it like because that was so are you doing a Subaru right now? What? Are you doing a Subaru right now? Trying to find somebody to buy? Oh, yeah, because it's definitely not my fault. Okay. No, <laughs> it was uh, just because it was one of those things, like, in my mind, it's Spokane. And uh, uh, like, no, though. Oh, I know. It's- I know. I Trust me, everyone that I passed, even in, like, grocery stores, it's just like, how do you say, do you say Spokane or Spokane? <laughs> and just, and then they would run away from me because everyone is afraid of human contact right now. But that's for another day. Um, All right. Before we leave you, uh, I just want to remind everybody listening and watching to subscribe to the podcast. And uh, also, if you get a chance, if you have any questions or any story ideas, uh, email the podcast. You can reach us at Anna, David, or Jeff at IEN.com. It's always good to hear from you. And uh, thanks to the few people that did have a few good comments and uh, to the ones that didn't have good comments. I'm watching you, Jeff. Oh, different different Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and uh, this is Today in Manufacturing Podcast. Mm -hmm.